powers that be daily pucks podcast focused on the intersection of wall street washington silicon valley and hollywood and the players who run it all i'm peter hamby it's monday october 10th which means it's media monday and today john kelly and i talk about why so many reporters seem to have it out for elon musk who is poised to take over twitter their favorite social media platform and we dig into the challenges facing nbc news and msnbc as more and more eyeballs move to streaming and digital we we'll hear about all that and more on today's episode, Powers the Beat. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by SleepMe comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code POWERS. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Monday, everybody. I'm joined today by John Kelly for our weekly Media Monday. There's a lot to talk about, John. And sometimes I feel like when I talk about the media, it's just like things I saw on Twitter. <laughs> for instance, like I'm following a bunch of people. I see some tweets. I get mad at quote unquote the media. And I'm not sort of like cross-checking that against what is actually being printed in you know, the newspapers, what's actually on television. But I do feel like you get to see the sort of id of the press reveal itself on Twitter, which to me has always been one of its problems. You know, as news came down last week, and we've covered this a lot at Puck, that Elon Musk and Twitter were supposedly, we'll wait till the ink is dry, actually going to do a deal and Elon will buy Twitter. I just like continue to marvel at the fact that reporters, tech reporters, political reporters, fucking hate Elon Musk. And they show it every day. And it's like, that dude is deeply flawed. He is fascinating. He's polarizing. Um, I think Morning Consult put out a poll last week showing him to be the most polarizing billionaire out there, but also really well-liked among independents and Republicans. What do you even think about that? Like, I see reporters who are just, like, talking shit about the incoming CEO of a company, and these reporters also have to cover the company. And it's like, are you guys, can you put your, like, bias aside for one second and just be like, 
what might be positive about this outcome or not even that just being like like wait and see how the chips fall before you like treat this guy like Donald Trump you know I have uh two views on this. Uh, one is the sort of view as a, a journalist and the other is the sort of view as a, as a business person. I'm constantly surprised by a certainly not universal, but often overwhelming rage. Uh, there was a great line in an old New York Magazine story about Gawker that Vanessa Gregoriadis wrote. They referred to it as the collective id or rage of the creative underclass. And I think that that comes across a lot in coverage of people like Elon Musk, where there's just a, um, there's a live from Brooklyn resentment at a guy who's, you know, who, who's not only a zillionaire, but, but is a, um, a craven capitalist, which by the way, most people are, they're just not nearly as successful. And I also find, I don't mean this as a critique, I want to be thoughtful in how I say this, even financial journalists have a much less sophisticated understanding of the world they cover than, say, political journalists. Um, I think the political aptitude between a politician and a political journalist is actually, like, pretty small. But when it comes to matters like, you know, a hedge funds or private equity or, or venture capital, there's a large delta between the people who practice these businesses and the people who, who cover them. Social media is a funny sector because we all use it. So I think we, that we often tend to believe that we are experts in it. But I think that there is also a, uh, a delta between the rage-like criticism, even among, you know, what would otherwise be ostensibly level-headed journalists and the people practicing it. So people, yes, yeah, so journalists are pissed. They don't like this guy by and large. They don't want to give him a shot. There's a lot of looming fear that he'll let Trump back on as, as he previously stated that he would. And there's probably some healthy skepticism that someone who's been a success machine in every other avenue that they pursued in business will have the aptitude to manage or execute on um, consumer-facing media. I think Elon Musk is a pretty smart guy. He's obviously a, a pretty toxic guy in, in many ways. And he's buying a company that is going to be worth about 50% less than he paid for it on, on the day the transaction closes, just based on when he made the deal and price of money since then. But... I think it's nuts to bet against this guy. I mean, it just it's absolutely crazy. If you had to put money now on whether this is going to be successful or not, I think that the overwhelming odds are that he will um, find a way to take a company that only makes about a billion dollars in EBITDA. Bill always talks about this in the show. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a pro very profitable company and find ways to make it more profitable. And it doesn't, and the, the, the MAU number doesn't matter anymore. Like these MAU numbers were, they weren't set in stone when they mattered, you know, 15 years ago. There are so many other ways to make Twitter profitable. And I have to imagine that, that he has a plan and he'll find an executive team that can, that can manage it. So as you can see, Peter, I'm also like, um, you, you've, your triggering has triggered me. Here I was thinking we were going to talk about Amazon Thursday Night Football for the third week in a row. Sorry. And, you know, what the <laughs> hell going on It was terrible. It was terrible. It was terrible. I did watch it, but it was terrible. Yeah, I mean, the creative underclass thing is is interesting. I've seen this from politicians too, like raging at political journalists. Like, when have you ever run a business? Like, what do you, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what it's like to run a government. And, and look, there's a lot of political journalists who don't know anything, who are somehow have bylines <laughs> That's at like mainstream too. news organizations. But- <laughs> Like, I do think the delta between an everyday politician and an everyday political journalist in terms of just knowledge of how things work in that world is smaller often than the delta between tech and business reporters and the companies they're covering. You know, I, I thought about this one, again, looking at Twitter, like I saw a few people and I've seen this since Musk started, tried to buy Twitter in the first place. It's like, this guy didn't even, you know, he's never done anything in his life. He didn't found... Tesla, he just came on board. And it's like, 
okay, freelance blue check mark journalist who like spends her day tweeting. Like, uh, I'm sorry. Like, this dude has done more than most private citizens. Yeah, he's landed people in space. I mean, give me a break. I mean, like, look, this is just to me an example of a public figure's politics getting in the way of the received wisdom and the, uh, you know, occurrent politics of of the media uh, based in cultural blue bubbles like New York, D.C., L.A., S.F. Alex Seitzwald, who I like, writes for NBC News. He, he wrote this article for NBC back in April. And it says, Elon Musk's uneasy relationship with the left explodes over Twitter takeover. And this is the lead. A climate hawk who immigrated to the U.S. in his 20s just struck a deal to buy Twitter. And some liberals are furious. And then it like goes on to say, conservative firebrand Jim Jordan put Musk in a pantheon alongside only former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. While outspoken progressives see a white nationalist sympathizing, tax-dodging, anti-union, anti-free speech, dystopian, neo-colonialist, plutocrat, tainted by his family's background in apartheid South Africa. It's like the idea that Twitter is this like wonderful, great utopia and like it's going to be ruined by Elon Musk is hilarious in the first place. Like Twitter's content moderation, its products, they've gotten better in recent years, but like, give me a fucking break. Like you like, he's going to ruin Twitter, which is already like a heinous cesspool. And like, he's going to make it worse because you disagree with his politics. And it's just like, it just puts some crazy blinders on people. Like NBC has this disinformation reporter who's who like tweeted out like this whole list of like Musk's, like the people financing the deal as if no one had ever seen that before. And like Bill Cohen's been covering that since the beginning and like puts out what is almost disinformation, like suggesting that the deal is going to be heavily subsidized by Saudi Prince Awali bin Talal Saad. And it's like, we knew this, that Saudi Prince was already an investor in Twitter and had a huge stake in it. He just rolled his money into the deal. You know, that's what that's what yeah. people do. You avoid taxes. You, you you roll from deal to deal. Yes. And so this 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 example of this one NBC reporter is like just one of many. But my friend Rob Godfrey, who is a Republican strategist in, in South Carolina, he's a press person. He always had this term that I love called Wikipedia warrior. And it was like a reporter would like see something on Twitter or see something in the news Google it, grab the first couple of things he sees on Wikipedia and tweet it out as if he's an expert. And like Musk is just like providing so much fodder in that lane. The best shining example of this was the New York Times after the takeover bid started back in March, April, May, whatever, got like two of their reporters in South Africa. Oh my God. To basically like go talk to people in South Africa and talk about how like growing up in apartheid South Africa might've shaped Elon and made him a racist. Yet they couldn't really find any anecdote proving that. In fact, they found counter arguments from friends basically being like he stood up to racist bullies here and he left the country because he didn't really like it. And it's like they're just like backfilling a narrative with facts that suit the narrative. And again, politicians have dealt with this for a long time. I'm just fascinated by the fact that so many journalists are just showing their cards on how much they don't like this guy, like who is a deeply flawed figure. Sure. But like. I think he could do some things at Twitter that are bad and he could do some things at Twitter that might be good. There's a double blind spot here, you know, where Musk, as a person who's who's achieved this status and the way he's achieved it, is a risk machine. He is someone who is comfortable with colossal, phenomenal, life-altering risk, which is n- not the mindset of the, of, uh, the normal journalist, like, or, yes. or, 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 or a different kind of risk. So, and I think what you're getting at is that there, there has not been 
an attempt to understand him in a nuanced and sophisticated way beyond the like blunt smoking Joe Rogan sort of hair plug type of uh, caricature that, that's been out there. And he's, he's made it easy to caricature himself, but I think that there's a big gap that has not been crossed. Journalists tend to see the world as it is. Investors tend to see the world as it could be if you make certain changes. And I think Twitter is smack dab in the middle of that. The, the Twitter we have now stinks, right? It is largely populated by bots. It's vicious. It's vile. And, and funnily enough, since Trump, it's also like vicious and vile in a low energy kind of way. Like it's not even fun. You know, I was rarely on it. Now I'm never on it. And I imagine that the Twitter of the future in two years, five years, whatever, is going to be remarkably different the way that the Walt Disney Corporation was phenomenally different 10 or 15 years ago than it is now. There'll be a lot more investment in it. They'll cut some lines of business. They'll recognize that if they have however many active accounts, there are other ways to monetize them besides simply serving ads. Maybe there's a paid service. Maybe there's a, I don't know, some some ridiculous Deutschkorn element. I think it is just fundamentally false to assume that like Twitter is just going to stick around and try out some small things. I think it will be very, very different in five years than it is now. And um, it may suck more, but but it will be different. Yeah, you nailed it. This is actually the thesis at the bottom of this segment is there's not a lot of room for nuance these days. Like, I think journals have to be okay with the gray area. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We'll talk about NBC News. Hey, Powers That Be listeners. I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. John Dillon um, posted a piece last week about Alex Wagner's rollout at MSNBC. Obviously, in Rachel Maddow's time slot, those are enormous shoes to fill. And, and even before Alex came along, 
Rachel's show was outrating pretty much every other show on MSNBC by a whole lot. But I feel like in this piece, like Dylan got a lot of issues, not just for MSNBC, but for NBC as a whole. Can you just sort of like go through what the struggles so far, it's still early with Alex Wagner's show, say about the whole enterprise? Sure. I don't think that Alex Wagner's soft ratings are any surprise at all. You know, she's Maddow's doing about two and a half million viewers on Monday. Wagner debuted at two, went down to 1.5. In the demo, it's a couple hundred thousand. I think that the really scary thing that Dylan reported is that her numbers, on some nights, they are below Chris Hayes at eight and Lawrence O'Donnell at 10, which means that people who are used to the MSNBC lineup are, are turning it off and then you know potentially turning it back on for those other hosts. Everyone likes Alex Wagner. I, I don't know Alex Wagner. She, she seems incredibly bright, smart. She was great on the circus. It was perfect for her talents. In the field reporting, conversational journalism, thoughtful, nuanced, smart for an intellectual audience. They offered her a great job. She took it. Everyone would have done the same thing. What's interesting here is that this is going according to what you would see to think the plan is, which is to just lower expectations. And I have wondered aloud whether there's a sort of mutual disarmament pact between CNN and MSNBC in prime time, that they realize that they are um, absent any big ideas or investments. They are managing the decline of a linear business, which means managing the decline of ratings, which will lead to the, the managed decline of advertising rates and the carriage fees that pay the networks handsomely. And again, these are, you know, I think CNN's a billion in profit, MSNBC's 500 million. These are long-term fees that the cable companies pay them to air them. And they're not going to go away overnight. They're going to allow for a long transition here. But when you zoom out, it's a really complex picture. The 9 p.m. hour on MSNBC is a challenge. And it's a challenge for the network president, Rashida Jones. But the chairman of NBC News, Cesar Conde, has even larger challenges. He's got so many legacy assets that he's got to manage for. What's the future of Meet the Press? Dylan's reported on this too. They keep trying to reboot Meet the Press and, and God love Chuck Todd. He keeps trying to make it bigger and more active with a daily podcast and a daily newsletter. But it's just not clear that that's the kind of brand that resonates in 2022. And it's not clear that that it's going to be able to resonate with the institutional, you know, requirements of, of NBC journalism. What's the future of today once the biggest business inside the NBC News umbrella, but it's going to continue to shrink every single year as, as uh, morning television fades away as a behavior. The evening news, it's the same thing, NBCnews.com. So these are enormous assets. And, and this is a multi-billion dollar business, but it's very hard to manage to decline when you're not simultaneously innovating. And that is... Uh, both an operational necessity or requirement, but it's also a challenge when the cost-cutting becomes the media narrative institutionally. And I think that that's kind of what is happening at CNN, as Dylan has remarked upon, that you know, up until this new morning show, it seemed that most, if not all, of what Chris Lick was doing was about managing down costs and, and perceived uh, hysteria. And at MSNBC, it, it seems that the story is managing costs here and, and the, as a result, managing ambition and media businesses are either growing or they're shrinking. And when you're shrinking, that's a scary place to be, especially in an environment where there's nowhere else for anyone to go. In the old days, uh, when we talked about this, when, when Brian left, like he would have just walked across the street. I don't know if that's open for business anymore. The contracts are different. The compensation's different. It's just, it's a declining medium and absent any sort of significant managerial reversals, it seems like it's, going to 
head this way. You know, I was thinking too with the ratings drop and Alex's time slot too. Like these replacements for different hosts that had been on TV for a very long time. Like it's just such a difficult place to be. Like the Rachel Maddow show debuted in 2008. Morning Joe debuted in 2007. Uh, I assume Joy Reid in the Chris Matthews slot, I assume her ratings just dropped off a cliff after Chris Matthews left. And it's because like all of those people I listed had these built-in audiences that were developed over a very long time. In some cases, like almost 20 years, at least in Chris Matthews' case. And it's like, if we assume that like peak cable television in terms of ratings and revenue was like 2013, 2014, and then it started going down. If you were like dialed in and locked in before then, you had this like big audience and Matta had a big audience. And then like you fast forward 15 years and like the eyeballs aren't there and there's just no like built-in following. It's obviously going to suffer. Like the ratings are obviously not going to be there. But also like, it's not just that, you know, like you mentioned the Today Show, you know, the Today Show is not doing great. And obviously like the morning shows are also declining in viewership. But this is me quoting TV Newser, started by Brian Stelzer back in the day. Good Morning America increased its total viewership advantage over NBC's Today Show last season by 124%, whatever that means, to its largest advantage in seven years since 2014, 2015. And so like the ball game with those morning shows is like, yeah, the ratings are going down, but like, how are you competing against your biggest rival? In, in this case, it's Good Morning America and Today Show. And like Today Show's ratings are going down. Some of these things are up and down. There's tempos and rhythms to like which networks are up and which networks are down. But it just kind of feels like across the board, NBC has some struggles here. You know, I was thinking about this this morning for whatever reason. Um, we're, we're entering semaphore season. You know, it's 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 uh, mid October and they're they're coming out late October. And you know, Ben Ben Smith gave that quote to uh, I think it was the New Yorker um, that he's sort of gotten trampled over about uh, creating a product for the you know the, the 200 million English speaking people in the world. And I think that he's been criticized and actually unfairly in my view for uh, presumably sounding like a McKinsey whiteboard in that uh, statement. But I think what he was really trying to come across, and I'm not trying to get inside his head, I think he was trying to say, it's a huge market where there are going to be a lot of winners. What we're seeing now in morning TV and in primetime is that they just want to compete. There used to be this deep desire, this fight between Lauer era today and GMA for who would win the ratings battle, who would win the week, and, you know, what would happen during sweeps weeks. And it was just a growing, competitive monstrously vicious industry. Now, everyone's incentivized to just run steady businesses where it's not worth it to be the best. You, you mentioned that um, that today, according to TV Newser, is gently getting its clock cleaned by GMA. Well, its two hosts make combined about a third of what Lauer made. So even if they lose, that's okay because they still help necessitate that, you know, NBC uh, has the carriage fees, although I can't imagine any cable company would ever cut NBC, but also consumer packaged goods and pharmaceuticals companies have to advertise in the Today Show as long as it rates respectably. It doesn't need to beat GMA to take in meaningful revenue. And what's, I guess, interesting about this business, and, and maybe there's a, a lag of about 10 years between this moment where the end is nigh and the next phase is there's going to be a next thing, right? Like we talk about this a lot in the show. There's going to be a next cable news primetime. You know, maybe Joe Rogan actually is kind of like scratching the surface of what the the first inning of that change might look like. But it's it's going to be there. People are always going to be interested 
in listening to, to political debates that fire them up and make them mildly, mildly insane. Or, uh, and similarly, they'll be interested in a show to wake up to that isn't just news, but makes them feel comfortable. They can tune in and out of. And I don't know if that's only going to be audio. Maybe maybe this will all happen in, in the metaverse, Peter, where we'll, we'll just be like in our bathrobes, you know, watching Hoda, um, a cartoon Hoda one day as we like, you know, levitate somewhere. Elon Musk will start a cable network and then all the reporters who hate him will suddenly <laughs> yes. suck up to him for jobs. That's right. Yeah. For those contributors jobs. Um, <laughs> but there will be a new thing. But I think we're at the moment here where we have no earthly idea what it's going to be yet. And a lot of the talent, both executive and creative, are still clinging on to the old thing rather than saying, like, fuck this, let's go figure out the new thing. But I, I think 10 years from now, it'll be drastically different. I'd be stunned if you even remember some of these these franchises then. It'll, it'll be like talking about Kodak or Polaroid. All right, John. Thanks so much, man. Have a great week. All right, you too, buddy. Talk to you later. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.